Welcome to Scuba Shack Radio, episode 46, recorded Sunday, November 22nd, 2020. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Hello again, everyone. And thank you for tuning in to Scuba Shack Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Cintrapino. Well, here we are, just a few days before Thanksgiving. And right now, it's really tough because of the recent wild spike in the coronavirus. So many people want to celebrate with family and friends. The CDC recently provided guidance that people shouldn't be traveling, and many experts are saying we should avoid all gatherings with extended family. We just need to be very diligent right now in our approach because help is on the way. The good news on the vaccination success gives me a lot of hope. I'm planning on getting vaccinated just as soon as it's available. Until then, I will be following the science. On today's show, I'm going to briefly touch on the virtual DEMA show and my experience, and then I'll give you a little bit of history related to the Coral Reef Conservation Act of 2000, and we'll have another installment of Sea Hunt, It's Still Alive. So let's get started. Last year, right around this time, we had just come back from the Dive Equipment and Marketing Association's 2019 DEMA show. The show last year was in Orlando, and we had a great time. It was with great anticipation that we look forward to the 2020 show being held in New Orleans. We wanted to reconnect with people and get all excited about the 2021 dive season. Things didn't quite work out with the pandemic essentially shutting down every convention. So DEMA pivoted to a virtual trade show. The actual virtual show ran from November 17th through November 20th. I know there was a lot of work put into the virtual show, and we are all learning how to adjust to this environment. I could only dedicate two days, Thursday and Friday, to the show because of the way I set up my schedule, so I missed out on some of the presentations that I would have liked to have seen. That's on me, but I wonder how many other people, like me, got their schedules out of whack with the DEMA show. Another thing that I didn't realize would be a problem is the wide range of time zones that had to be taken into consideration, since people weren't all in the same location. Also, when we go to DEMA, we close the shop and travel. We didn't close this year. We stayed open and took care of business. That took away from the focus. Again, that was our choice, but I'm not sure if other small shops like us closed up to attend a virtual conference. A tough headwind. I did have the opportunity to attend several educational sessions. I'm not sure if it was because of the way I was navigating around, 
but there didn't seem to be as many presentations. Perhaps that was by design, or as I said, maybe it was operator error on my part. But when I did get to attend a presentation, it worked out well, whether it was Zoom or GoToMeeting. It looks like each presenter set up their own virtual meetings. My preference would have been to have a consistent virtual platform. That wasn't a big deal, however. But let's face it. One of the big things we love about going to DEMA is walking the exhibitor floor, connecting with our vendors to see all of their new stuff, finding new products or travel opportunities, and socializing later in the day for happy hour or dinner. That just isn't going to happen with a virtual trade show. To make up for this, there was a sort of a virtual exhibit hall, but it was really just a list of exhibitors, and while the list was pretty long, there were some really big names in the industry missing. For me, it was disappointing because I didn't think there was much more information than what I could have gotten from their websites or didn't already have. I'm not sure if there's a better way to do this. Perhaps having a virtual floor that you can navigate through, stop at booths, and maybe get to interact with a vendor real-time when you can, just like the show. Maybe this would be too challenging technologically, but if possible, would give a, more of a feel for the show. If not, my suggestion if we can't meet in person is to focus more on vendor presentations. I applaud DEMA for really trying to have a DEMA show 2020. I'm sure they learned a lot and maybe they can take some of this forward and supplement the real show in person throughout the year. We all know that scuba diving is an intensely social activity. We are looking forward to Las Vegas and DEMA 2021. In the last episode of Scuba Shack Radio, I introduced you to some exciting legislation that has been introduced into Congress, the Ocean-Based Climate Solutions Act of 2020. In that bill, there was reference to another law, the Coral Reef Conservation Act of 2000. I was curious about this law, seeing how we've been really focused on coral conservation at the shop. First, I thought I'd give you the objectives of this law, and then talk a little bit about the fascinating journey this took to actually become a law. There are six main objectives of this law. Number one is to preserve, sustain, and restore the conditions of coral reef ecosystems. Second is to promote the wise management and sustainable use of coral reef ecosystems to benefit local communities and the nations. Third is to develop sound scientific information on the condition of coral reef ecosystems and the threats to such ecosystems. Number four is to assist in the pre preservation of coral reefs by supporting conservation programs, including projects that, that involve affected local communities and non-governmental organizations. Five is to provide resources for those programs and projects. And number six is to establish a formal mechanism 
for collecting and allocating of monetary donations from the private sector to be used for coral reef conservation projects. It seems like back in 1999 and 2000, there was quite a bit of interest in coral reef conservation. My research shows that there was significant bipartisan support. For example, I came across a Senate bill introduced by Senators Olympia Snow of Maine and Senator John McCain of Arizona, both Republicans, and they called their bill the Coral Reef Conservation Act of 1999. There was another Coral Reef Protection Act of 1999 introduced by Hawaii Democratic Senator Daniel Inouye, and the Coral Reef Resource Conservation and Management Act of 1999 was introduced by Senator Daniel Akaka, a Democrat from Hawaii. And what would actually become the law, best as I can tell, was introduced in the House of Representatives by Congressman Jim Saxon, a Republican congressman from New Jersey. Jim was in the House of Representatives from 1984 to 2009. He has quite an interesting background if you care to do a little research online. The bill became a law, Title 16, U.S. Code 6401, on December 23, 2000. It's interesting to see just how the legislative process works. Seems like this act was actually attached to another bill that had to do with Russian fishery legislation. The Coral Reef Conservation Act of 2000 also incorporated a presidential executive order, 13089, that was issued by President Bill Clinton on June 11, 1998. That executive order directed all federal agencies to protect and not adversely impact coral reefs. It also directed the setup of a coral reef task force in order to conduct research and to take measures to conserve, mitigate, and restore. One of the key sections of the Act is 6402, titled National Coral Reef Action Strategy. This section stated that the National Coral Reef Action Strategy be submitted to Congress and published in the Federal Register not later than 180 days after December 23, 2000. I searched the Federal Register for 2001 and couldn't find anything related to this strategy, except that NOAA published a request for comment on proposed implementation guidelines for their Coral Reef Conservation Program, and it stated that they were still in the progress of developing the national strategy. That notice was published on December 10, 2001. The Coral Reef Conservation Act of 2000 also called for effectiveness reports on a state-by-state basis for the grant program and a report to Congress every two years on the progress associated with national strategies. So where are we today? 20 years later. This act is really manifested in NOAA's Coral Reef Conservation Program. If you go to their website, coralreef.noaa.gov, you can see all of their work. It is fairly extensive. One thing that bothered me a bit was that their last report to Congress, it looks like, was in 2010 and 2011. There is, however, a Coral Reef Conservation Program Strategic Plan published in 2018. 
In the next episode of Scuba Shack Radio, we'll take a closer look at that plan and see where we're going. Twenty years ago, Congress and the White House came together to do something really positive with the Coral Reef Conservation Act of 2000. Let's hope we see this type of cooperation in the years ahead. Time for another installment of Sea Hunt. It's still alive. And this time, we are going back to Season 3, Episode 20, titled Synthetic Hero. Synthetic Hero first aired on May 21, 1960. And we find Mike down in a Caribbean harbor where he is working with a company dredging that harbor. As Mike is underwater scouting ahead of the dredge, he finds an uncharted wreck and discovers that it's the Navy LST number 4277. An LST is short for landing ship tank, one of those ships that can push up onto the beach and offload equipment. I spent three years on LST 1198, the USS Bristol County, in the late 1970s. Well, Mike notifies the Navy and meets with a Captain Sellers, who tells Mike that LST 4277 went missing on September 12th. 1944. He also tells Mike that 18 crew members died. Two of the survivors, however, Jack Clayton, who was the captain, and Tom Ory, who Clayton, a hero, saved, might be interested in the finding. Captain Sellers asked Mike to find out what happened before the dredging operators blow up the ship. In the next scene, Mike is walking down the pier, carrying his doubles in one hand and the other equipment is slung over his shoulder. One-handed doubles. Wow. There he meets the survivors, Jack Clayton and Tom Worry, along with Jack's wife, Susan. Is it me, or there are a lot of Susies and Susans on Sea Hunt? Jack wants to dive with Mike, and Tom will be on deck for support. Mike convinces the dredging operators to give him 48 hours on the wreck, and try to find out what happened to LST-4277. As the scene shifts, we see Jack getting into his gear. Mike's not so sure Jack knows what he's doing. Jack says he's just a little rusty. So they giant stride in and make their way to the wreck and split up. Mike's a little confused because Jack doesn't seem to be all that incompetent in the water. Well, they don't find anything and get back on the boat. Jack seems really agitated. They only have one more day to solve the mystery. As the sun comes up the next day and they're back on the water, Mike is getting all geared up and ready to go. Clayton is fiddling around. Mike's frustrated at the delay when suddenly Clayton drops his tanks over the side and you see it sinking to the bottom. Mike has no choice but to retrieve it and hoping that this is the last delay and that the tank isn't a jinx on Jack's back. So now, the two of them are back underwater. Jack goes to the bow area, and Mike heads aft inside the engine room, and he finds a blast hole below the water line. As he exits the space with this newfound knowledge, suddenly, 
A nightmare of junk is falling on top of him. It could only have been shoved on top of him by one person. Jack Clayton isn't a clumsy amateur. Mike frees himself and chases after Jack. Jack pulls his knife and they get into a fight. Mike prevails and takes Jack back to the surface with a hammerlock. Back on the boat, we find out that Jack wasn't trying to kill Mike, just trying to scare him. You see, Jack confesses that it was all his fault that LST-4277 sank. During the attack, it says he, he steered the ship into a reef where it sank, and that the enemy didn't do it at all. Tom is very angry now, and they lock Jack in the cabin while Mike makes one more dive on the wreck. Mike is back in the engine room now, and he finds something. Just then, dynamite from the dredge operators detonates, and the ship starts to collapse on Mike. He's stuck, and his regulator is damaged. Back topside, Jack is yelling to get out because Mike might need help. Tom refuses his pleas, so Jack breaks out of the cabin and gives Tom a karate chop, knocking him out. Jack jumps in, finds Mike. They buddy breathe while he frees him from the wreck, and they get back to the boat. Before they surface, Susan comes aboard, gets, wakes Tom up. Just then, Mike and Jack return. Jack tells Susie the ship's sinking was all his fault. Susan doesn't care. She understands. Just then, Mike produces his find, a piece of metal from a Japanese shell that shank, sank the 4277. Jack is still a hero, a synthetic hero. Well, I guess Hollywood took a lot of liberties here. Let's see. An LST operating independently in the Caribbean all by itself, doing battle with either a Japanese ship or submarine. Seems a little far-fetched. But as we know, for Mike Nelson, nothing is improbable. Well, that's it for today, everyone. Again, thanks for listening, and also have a safe and happy Thanksgiving. We need to hang in there just a little while longer and really look forward to 2021. I'll be back again in a couple of weeks with more Scuba Shack Radio. Until then, so long. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Talk to you next time.